0: 10, 12 years ago, before before I was even being commissioned to write operas, I always had this idea that I wanted to write a trilogy of London operas. Um, And that, over the last 10 years, has happened. My first opera, based on Hogarth's A Harlot's Progress, opened in Vienna in 2013. Um, I was then very quickly commissioned, having finished that, but before it premiered, to write my second opera, which was an adaptation of Dickens' Christmas Carol, which opened in Houston in 2014. And then when Ian O approached me uh, midway through 2016 about a possible commission, I suggested Jack the Ripper to complete that trilogy. Now, the caveat when I came up with it as an idea and when I presented it as an idea to Ian O was that I didn't—I wanted it to be about the women, I wanted it to be from the women's perspective. Um, I was long perturbed by the injustice of the fact that we all we all know far more about him, although we don't know who he is. We are far more aware of the who done it aspect and the police procedural aspect than we are of the women. And I thought um, it would be wonderful to have an opportunity to tell it from that perspective, giving dignity and humanity to the women. Um, and we actually don't have Jack in it at all as such, because I thought having Jack in it would detract from the storytelling of these women's lives and therefore, women in general's lives in Whitechapel at the time and adds to the cab, you know to the existing canon of It, which we didn't really want to do. Welcome Martin. Thank you. Martin Brabbins. you know music director and conductor of Jack the Ripper. <laughs> so yes that's how uh, so when um, when it was agreed that this would be the commission that goes ahead um, we settled upon Emma. Emma Jenkins did the libretto. She'd done the libretto for my previous opera, In Parenthesis, which opened at Welsh National Opera. Um, And it felt that she would be a good fit for this piece too, so we we set about it, really, and and got the work done.
1: And, And for those of you who are composers, I think this is a really interesting thing about being aware of writing new work and thinking who it's for when you write new work. Yes. So I'm also interested in that as a responsibility of composers or of the people that commission new work. It's yes. how you strike the right balance of being brave, of sensing as like, guys, where is going to be the appetite for this new work? Because times are tight. We don't have the money to make as much new work, yes. not just at e but generally. So, yeah. so I think these are really interesting questions to be aware of. And if you are a young composer or a librettist, involved in making new work. Martin, feel free to jump in. We're just having a really open discussion about it. it, it kind of where, where that comes, because is it that you have a birding story that you yes. really want to tell? Yes. you persuade <coughs> someone that is worth putting um, in? Yes, I
0: think so. I think if you try and attach yourself to some kind of zeitgeist, if you try and do a, a Me Too opera now, that will, it, that, that you're, you're on a hiding to nothing because you're riding on something else's skirt tails. But this was a piece I wanted to tell three years ago and it just so happens that there's now in the media in the last year, two years, been a lot more illustrations of, of the manipulation and exploitation of the vulnerable in society. There's been a lot, you know, that, that has been a farm, you know, the accountability of per, uh, perpetrators of crime has been very much something we've all been faced with. So that was a, a happenstance. But it was, this was the story I wish to tell. And I think if you're able to tell with conviction and emotion, and, and I don't like to use the verb sell, but if you're able to, to portray your passion and your conviction for something, hopefully people will respond and, and enjoy and bathe in your excitement about the subject matter rather than trying to attach yourself to something that perhaps is fashionable. Bearing in mind lots of the big opera houses book three to six years in advance. So yeah, it's three to six years' time. Goodness knows what we'll be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You, have you got things you want to say on
1: that?
2: Yeah, hello everybody. Nice to see you. You're coming later to the rehearsal, is that right? So you haven't heard anything yet. Interesting way around, I suppose. Um, Going back to that question about, you know, what you write and why and... I think you have to write what you you want and what you believe in rather than think anything about what's going on around you. A composer has to be honest to themselves. That's not to say that you don't exist in a society and in a culture that has certain expectations, but th- the more honest you are as, a, as an artist, the more chance you have of success in the, in the long run. And if your honesty doesn't chime with those people that are listening, tough. You know, that's, that's, that's how it is. My um, sort of hero in that way is Birtwistle, Harrison Bertwistle. who doesn't give a monkey's hoot about what people think about what he writes, very brave and very um, single-minded in that sense. But that's that's why I admire him so much. It's a world away from Ian's music, which is also I find very honest. And you know, he writes; it's incredibly well integrated. The whole piece feels like. It's from the same pen, thank goodness. Yeah, Apart yeah. from the bits that I've changed. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's important, that you have, a, you have a clear, honest voice and you express something as clearly and honestly as you're able to. And I think with Jack, musically, it's, it's clear. I mean, Ian's got a very strong passion for voices and that really shows in his writing he's been so so careful and considerate to make sure that all the voices the the parts fit the voices the the range of the voices he knows which are the really good notes in every voice and that's an Im- important moment you know if you write an a sh- high a sharp for a soprano it might not sound as it might sound 50% less good than an a natural just a semitone lower it's absolutely true, especially with, should we say, more mature voices mm. some which we've got on the stage. So you have to be really, really careful about how you write for voices. And in my experience, writing opera is the hardest task a composer ever has to undergo. And you, this is your fourth oh, now. Fourth. So he's, a, he's an old hand. So he knows, he knows the ropes. And it really shows we're having, we're not having to make, I'm not having to make the orchestra play quieter, well, maybe three or four times in the whole piece, but lots of the time they have to actually support a little more than, uh, than they are doing. So that's incredibly unusual for me not to be discouraging the orchestra. And that's testament to Ian's care over the balance of, of voice to orchestra and this very large auditorium
0: and i have to say that you know opera is yes it it, you you have to be you have to be on top of your game because as a a composer of grand opera whereby i have a chorus i have a full symphonic orchestra i have to make sure my counterpoint is spot i have to make sure um my harmonic spacing is right you know i have to make sure all my voicings are right you have to be at the top of every aspect of your writing but I think one thing that is often neglected is that with my soloists I do treat them each and every one of them as if I'm writing a concerto for them if you were to be writing a violin concerto now I for a specific uh, instrumentalist or a piano concerto I am sure you would meet with the player and you would find out what their idiom is you would find out what their idiosyncrasies are what they love doing what what they don't like doing where the holes are and I did that with every one of the cast members that were already confirmed prior to my writing. So I was able to obviously do the very generic things like range, tessitura, what kind of other roles they'll be doing at the time. That's the basic stuff, that's the entry level stuff that we should all be doing. But I was then invited by them and asked them if they would um, go in a little bit deeper with me, anatomize the voices. Let's talk about where you need to modify vowels on certain, certain parts of it. Am I being too gesticulative? No, I'm being...
2: I'm being frozen. Oh, we don't being want very that. warm for three hours and
0: now. Now you're being chilled. It's fine. It's right. it's no, it's, 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 that's fine. I was just thought was I kind of like whacking no, it's you not or personal. something. <laughs> that's good. Very good. It's, um, it's
2: okay. Now it's I'm fine. You're it's, right now. Good.
0: The okay. Well, we'll just keep that one nice Let's and empty. Keep that yeah. <laughs> Put our drinks there. Um, so, I was talking things like vowel modification. So, for instance, uh, when you're singing with the, the female voice. Even more than the male voice when when it gets to the break and ab- above the break the passaggio um, often i don't know if there are any singers in room but they need to start modifying the vowels they need to start doing different things to to the palette in order to make the sound project in order to make it all spin or you know whichever whichever uh, verb they wish to use so i spoke to them all about that um and as martin suggested we have five women in this cast who are at the age of 60 and above And that was another big reason I wanted to do this opera, because there is a dearth of roles for women of that age that aren't either um, nursemaids, nannies, that kind of thing, or harridans. So it was nice to be able to do five well-rounded characters. But in that, I had to countenance the fact that voices mature in in a whole raft of ways. It's not just that they lose their top notes, because... That's not always the case. It's not that they all become dramatic mezzo because they don't. So in this piece, we've actually got five singers, one of whom is almost 80, whose voices have aged just totally differently. So some have lost the top, some uh, have gained this a really, really rich middle. Some have still got the top, but have got weaker bottoms. Some's voices haven't really changed at all, but they might just have more of a stamina issue. So you have to be careful in that regard. And the, the, the biggest test of that came in the piece where you won't hear it this evening, but you hear it at the performances, where I um, score a quintet for, for these five women. And that was, as I've said in interviews, was like this, the most musically fun sudoku puzzle, because I had to... It's in polyphony, so... Um, I'm weaving these voices in and out of one another, but choosing where each of them sh- sh- has the climax, because I wanted it to be gratifying, not just some kind of non-melodic polyphony, but actually gratifying lines that these singers could sing and choosing, you no, know, she will bloom better on a G-sharp here. No, she should take slightly higher climax because she's better up there. And that that was really gratifying to then hear it sung back at me and sounding just as good as I hoped it would. So yeah, really, really take the time with your soloist singers and treat them as if you're writing a concerto for them because it pays dividends. It really pays dividends. And no, you know, you don't necessarily need to know about the, the nitty gritty of bel canto. But the reason why I did is because from the age of 23 onwards, I started a quite a close working relationship with uh, the soprano Diana Damrau, And I realised, well, if I'm working with such a solid technician as she is, I need to be able to speak... Her same language and not embarrass myself in front of her. I need to know what I'm talking about. And therefore, I deliberately studied lots about the Garcia Belcanto method, things like that, just so I could, so I knew what I was dealing with. But that is, that might not be a level you wish to, to enter at, but please do know what fuck is. Fuck is the, ca- the very generic categorization of voices whereby voices in each. Uh, vocal categories: soprano, mezzo, whatnot are, are categorised into into the lighter, the more lyrical, dramatic, heavy dramatic, and there's repertoire that that covers. Each of these, um, as you, I might be preaching the converted. you might know this already, but it's fuck. So vocal characterization is a really, really important thing because it, it helps you see the templates of other roles that have existed. So, you, so if someone says, oh, he's a Billy Budd baritone, well, you know that's a particular type of baritone that's not the same as a Peleus baritone, similar in that they're both high, but not quite the same. And then you have a Don Giovanni baritone, which is a very different thing. So it's good to know the rep. I would say that's a really, really good thing to know.
2: One of the most important lessons I had at university was from a, 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 one, of the, one of the lecturers, but he was also a performing musician. He said, Go to concerts. When was the last concert you went to? Berlin Film. Sorry, London Symphony Orchestra.
0: That was very recent. I was there too. Good yeah, boy. Yeah.
2: No, but you can learn. You learn so much from actually just going and experiencing, and listening, and watching, and seeing how ensembles work, how conductors work, how singers work. Uh, Going back to your thing about voices, some singers find contemporary music really difficult, really, really difficult. And you know, if you've some of our more mature ladies. Many of them will not have done much contemporary music. No. In fact, some of them probably. Isn't this? I think Sue Bullock said this is the first,
0: it's her first world premiere yeah.
2: that she's done. Now Sue has done a lot of Schoenberg, and she's not phased by this music, so it's not been a problem. But if if you if if, if we had asked some of the, since I mentioned Bert Whistle earlier, if we asked any of these ladies to sing Bert Wessel, they'd just say no, thank you very much. But because Ian writes grateful vocal music, we, he suits what he writes to the, the women we've got and, and the, and the gentlemen as oh, well. Yes. But you have to be, rea- if you write, you know, difficult dodecaphonic music for some singers, you'll come a cropper. And that's, this is the voice of experience. I've seen it happen so many times. So that's also something to take into account
0: when you choose a singer to write for, if because you get that luxury. Not everyone is Barbara Hannigan. No. Not everyone has that hunger, but also oral facility to be able to sing that music, mm. with, uh, the Ligeti that she does, the Grand Macabre Suite that she mm. does. Astonishing, astonishing mm. stuff. But yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Um, let's pull the kind of
1: drone up and think about your approach to actually telling a story through music. So ha- what, how do you begin to then, You've talked about the individual characters and the individual yes. singers that are going to do it, but yes. when you're thinking about the whole, maybe something about... Prior to it, writing. Prior to writing or um, in the process of writing and whether that's... How that works in your relationship with Emma, is it different when you're working with different writers, but in terms of...
0: Yeah, I mean, this piece particularly, I've, of the five operas I've written, three of them, the three London ones were self-originating in that I was asked what I wanted to do and I proffered the ideas and they were taken up, so I feel particularly passionate about these ones. And these ones were where these three were ones in which I was in the driving seat, so I, I was able to lead discussions. So once Emma, it was decided Emma would be the librettist. Um, she and I met um, fresh off the back of *In Parenthesis*, so it was it was mid 2016, and we decided what the story was that we wanted to tell. So we both knew that it was about restoring dignity and identity to these women who who were, who were faceless, if not worse, if not considered, um, very disparagingly. So that was our primary concern we then made the brave choice to not have jack in it as i've I've said already and then um focus more in not just what we didn't want to say but what we did want to say um so we knew we didn't want it to be police procedural we knew we we didn't want it to be a whodunit and then when you are able to isolate what you don't want you you can then um hone in what you do want we knew we wanted it, we didn't want it to be a biography of five women who then just happened to get killed one by one, so we knew we would have to take some dramatic license. As you are allowed to do when you're doing um, works for the stage, we're not we're not obliged to do uh, to do biographies. So, the choice that we made was that with this piece, everything that you see happening on stage happened, literally everything happened. Not necessarily to these women, but everything happened in 1880s in the East End because Emma did a great deal of research. Um, on two particular writers, Jack London and W.T. Stead, who were ensconced in London in the East End at the time. So everything that you'll see portrayed happened. So once we said, yes, we will have truth, the piece is truthful and everything happens, but we've got license to do with the characters what we will, we were then able to say, well, so Mary Kelly, who's the prima donna of the piece, what is her personality? We then apportioned personalities and situations to people. Emma created a treatment, which is like a very basic synopsis, which was then okayed by the company. And then she elaborated upon that and then did drafts and drafts of the libretto, which she would share with me. Uh, I would give notes and then she would share with the company. And um, it just goes on polishing. But I had great trust in her. Emma herself, not only being a librettist now, was also a staff director here at the ENO for years. So knows how opera works, but also knows knows how opera in English works, knows what the pitfalls of setting English can be. Um, pitfalls I'm probably not even aware of because she's already seen to some of the problems for me Um, so the storytelling was devised before I then start writing a note Um,
2: did the are the scenes in the order now that they already absolutely, always were in? Absolutely. That's did. quite unusual, I think. Yeah, in, there was no. The
0: I think that's Emma's na- innate dramaturgy. I just think she had a feel for when ensembles should come and what scenes would suit ensembles. And then before I started writing, I then called meetings, as you do, with um, the ENO music staff. So I called a meeting with you and the, the head of the chorus. As I did, t- you know, it's the same thing I did with the singers, and we chatted and we chatted about the different sections and what the strengths were of the different sections and, you know, and also the acoustics of the house because this wasn't built as an opera house, this was built as a music hall. So I had to be aware that there would be some um, idiosyncrasies in this building that I might need to be aware of. So these are kind of little things that all go into, into this big cauldron. And I've, I've had copious notes, so it wasn't as if this was all swimming in my head. And then I get the final draft of the libretto and I just start off by setting it chronologically. I know, I know some composers don't, but it works for me chronologically. I set just a very, very basic vocal draft, not a vocal score, just basically the vocal line from start to finish with, with something like an unrealized Baroque figured bass. So just a harmonic underpinning. And as the piece was writing, um, motifs and, and musical gestures for each of the characters began to reveal themselves to me. It was clear that some had a more of a staccato, more of a patter delivery. Some were far slower and more measured in delivery. You know, they each developed their own vocal personalities before a note. Of orchestral tissue had been fashioned around them. And also their own music, musical motifs, because I, I think this piece call, called, because we're dealing with so many personalities, that it called for a more motivic treatment, so you could see, you could follow their journey and, and whatnot. So once I've got all of that, I then start orchestrating. It's cutting a long story, very short. But by that point, I know what Maud's personality is. So I, I have an idea, right? So she will then suit such and such timbre. Mary Kelly will suit such and such timbre. So then once I've got the, the finished vocal draft, I then make the choices before I start composing about the, how I'm going to dress them in terms of timbre. Um, and then I set about orchestrating. I don't know how in depth you want me to go into
2: that, but um, that, that's my process. What I find impressive in the, in, the, in the work is that each scene is a very clear self-contained dramatic entity in itself. So Ian has a very sure instinct of how to build uh, ten- build and release tension, build to climaxes, and that's that really helps the musical performances because you you get a sense of the of the of the journey of the piece even without the text actually, and that's largely down to harmony, largely down it's to har- uh, harmony. Every- everything's down to harmony in the end. What I don't mean classical harmony, I mean, it's been whatever harmony you choose to, to use, that's how you can create tension and, and release. And these, all these scenes stand alone very beautifully as individual moments, but then they have a, a strong cumulative effect as well. The one, another question I have was, obviously, you have to have scene changes in opera. Were you asked to write any interludes specifically so that, uh, you know, scene changes could take place? Yes, I mean, I know there are... St- yeah, st- yeah, st- no, I was... But how I, many of those, you know, I, I, do you remember how that came, how they yes, came about? Yes,
0: it, it, well, I, I was just told that we're going to have to go from this set to a yeah. photographer's studio, and although I wasn't given a duration, because I've been to a few operas, and, I, you know, I, when, when you attend operas, you're kind of aware how long things take and how long intervals, sorry, interludes, mid-scene or, you know... Juxtaposing two scenes should be shouldn't really be more than two and a half minutes. So uh, and 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 staging, uh, most stages can be changed in about that time. So I kind of adhered to that. Yeah. But it was all stipulated. It wasn't. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was totally no, but stipulated. that's an interesting thing. You know, you think Wagner just wrote his operas? Well, he probably also had some of that in mind when he yeah. wrote his. Uh, you know, you get it, you have to go from the the Rhine to wherever to the to forest or whatever. Yeah. You know, things need, things take time and. There's only one scene change where the stage manager have asked me not to rush <laughs> to <laughs> make sure the there, go on the, uh, to the, on the slow side of the tempo because, you know, there's a, <laughs> things have to happen and people have to make those things happen basically in the dark as well. So a lot of... I imagine all the scene changes take place in the dark. Uh, so these guys, they have to be... You have to take care of their well-being because we've got lots of coffins on the stage sunk into the floor so you know the, the, I'm sh- the chances of a broken leg are pretty high in this opera and the, he'll have to pay all the compensation all,
0: all <laughs> so when it comes to orchestration itself um, my process is first of all atmosphere what time of day is it are we indoors are we outdoors is it cold is it warm this, and I'm not saying this is what any of you should do, but that's where I start. I, I start with atmosphere and environment. That, that affects the speed, that affects the timbre, that affects the texture, that affects the pitch particularly. Yeah, the, and, and from then I think about movement. I think, well, what's... Because I've already got my harmony. That's already been kind of seen to a very skeletal way. I then think of, as I said, um movement, what's going on? Do we have a build Do you know um and then I think also emotion is this is this a bare raw scene? Is this a very amorous scene? you know so so I have several layers in which I approach it, but I always start with atmosphere because um we're we're writing for the stage, we're writing for theatrical and dramatic experiences, and I think that that is key for me. so is it freezing outside do i need lots of high tremolo strings do i you know do do i need lots of high pitch percussion because it's so and so because it's glittering that that kind of thing so that's always where i start atmosphere and then everything then leads on in terms of instrumental choices in terms of textural advanced techniques things like that um fortunately enough here um I have, I've got the full orchestra here that I'm allowed to use and they've got a huge percussion um, desk, a battery, the battery is enormous that I was allowed to choose from. And they also um, agreed to a request I had because I wanted this piece to have its own tinta, as Verdi would have put it, its own little mouthfeel, its own colour. Uh, and. And as much as Britain did, you know, what, what, what he would often um, use, in, for instance, in *Midsummer Night's Dream*, he has the celeste, or, or in uh, um, uh, *Turn of the Screw*, for instance. You know, when we have this otherworldliness, you, you use particular instruments to 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 help create a feel that makes it different from other things. And because I wanted an antique sense and a foreboding sense. Um, I asked, and they agreed to the instrument, the cymbalum. I don't know if any of you know that. So it's an instrument. It's like an almost like an upturned harp, or the inside of a of a piano that's struck with mallets, and it creates this metallic, this rotten metallic sound that really hangs in the air, rather like kind of mists. Because I was looking for something that would swirl and fog, and and we have that. So you, there may be some scenes actually now that you hear this afternoon where you'll be like, "What? That? That's not a harp." That's not that's not a harp. No, that's not a harpsichord, is it either? No. <laughs> so if you find something in that, it's the cymbalum. It's at the back of the pit
2: at the moment. I think it'll stay there, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible instrument. I love it a bit. It's Hungarian gypsy music. What, a lot when of I that suggested level. it, Martin was like, if they're difficult, I'll support you. Yeah. And I was like, yes, Martin, let's do this. Team symbolism. Yeah. So, yeah, you hear every time things start getting a bit worris- worrisome on stage... You hear the cymbal. Yeah, it, it creates a certain atmosphere in the piece. And that's, yeah, it's good that you know, but I don't know if the rest uh, the public won't really know. They'll think, There'll oh, like what's that? They'll staring. come and have a look in the pit. Yeah. It's like Lucia, With when the when the, girl, the, the, yes. So, so the orchestration, I, w- I would say, sorry, Natasha, the orchestration is, again, it's very clear, as I said earlier, about this is all functions uh, in terms of the balance of the piece, that the, the instruments and the choice of instruments and the groupings of instruments that Ian uses, are actually very carefully considered. And there are very, very, very few tutis in the piece, loud or soft, there are very few where most of the instruments are playing. So it, it's a particular color this, this score has. And then of course, when it is incredibly loud, it has a much bigger impact. If we go for it, yes. yeah. yeah.
0: I, I remember hearing, if you know the Britain piece, Owen Wingrave, which is the kind of piece he wrote toward the end of his life of, uh, uh, about a young soldier who dies in a haunted room. Um, and he only has the final tutti, he only has one tutti at the very end. When, and I, when I remember hearing about that, I remember thinking, do you know what? If you hold back, Mm. It, it will play for all the more, mm. you know. We, I know there's a full orchestra of 60 down that I know I could make the piece, you know, sound like Wozzeck from start to finish if I wanted in terms of just the, the, the magnitude of it. But um, we love that interlude in, in the latter part of Votzek because it's so out of what we haven't been expecting. Mm. We're like, oh, you know, when it kind of makes your teeth hurt, it's so loud.
2: Um, and it's in D minor.
0: Uh, well, None go, of so the rest of the so pieces. Apparently
2: he, the wrote, he wrote that... Many, many years earlier he just for, just as a love for song, for, his for, a love his song. Girl, for a girlfriend. And then he, he decided to put it in right at the end. So it's a completely transplanted really piece. Yeah. It feels so right. No, of course, I know. It's the best part of the piece. It is. No singers, it's great.
0: Yeah, near and, yeah I was in New York for two days working on my next opera but yes I was I've been every day but two so you've had I've
2: you've been, been, been in every every rehearsal yeah. which is really not rare quite to everyone, have a, a
0: the conductor the, who's a, a, as artistic director or music director here to have a, that level of conductor at every rehearsal is very rare've i never had that before I
2: yeah I know that's the case some conductors just come in and go out and come in I've got an assistant so I did miss a couple of things uh, but not not many I feel I ought to I have to be there because things change, just on a daily basis. Things start to take on a new shape as the, as the uh, project progresses. And you have to be in there all the time just to make sure nothing goes too far off the rails, because things can go off the rails. So yeah, the, the process is very simple with putting on an opera. So they get the music, I get the score, they learn the music, I learn the score. We come together for a couple of days of piano, me and the cast. In the meantime, our chorus masters are teaching the chorus the music. Of course, don't forget that. Um, so So I've done my piano and cast rehearsals. Then I hand over responsibility for about a month to the director of the opera. So all the rehearsals from about day three until just a couple of days ago, were staging rehearsals. So we're there always keeping the music on track, as I said, but the rehearsal room is used and directed by Daniel Kramer to get all the cast to to act out the the drama in the way he wants them to. So we go through all that st- uh, production rehearsals, they called, up in West Hampstead. And then occasionally I have to nip off and take some orchestra-alone rehearsals to start teaching them what's going on. Then we come to to come on stage with stage and piano rehearsals. So still no orchestra in the pit, stage and piano rehearsals, which we've done four of? We've done four of. Uh, Somewhere in that last week, we have two Zitzprober. So that's when we just sing and play the music together. No staging at all. So I'm conducting the orchestras there and the cast are... Some of them bring their copies and so it's just like we were rehearsing for a concert, in fact. Then the final stages, which we're on the third... You're going to hear the third stage in orchestra rehearsal tonight. So that's when everything comes together in theory. Yeah? It's still work in progress. So we've done two stage and orchestras now. We did one on Saturday and we did just now, this afternoon. And we're three quarters of the way through the piece. Yeah. So we'd, we're, we're well on schedule. So what you'll hear tonight is I'll work through to the end of the opera from about halfway through the final act, the second act. And then we'll go back and do some selected uh, sections that we think could do with another another look at.
0: And at this point, you're, what you're seeing visually, this is when lots of the tech people are, are now doing their stuff, because they haven't seen it on stage. So. You'll see lots of lights just suddenly changing. That's not how it's going to be. And you'll see lots of things unlit because the, this is when the light, this is when the first time the lighting people are really seeing it in situ. Hang so on, it's, it's
2: r- not the first. I've never had about five goes. It's just they're very slow. It's they're very slow. Sorry, I was being polite. <laughs> no, when I say they're very slow, slow, they need to data. experiment. So things are still, yeah, yeah things are still coming, coming together. We've had stage and pianos. I don't so I was wrong. just being kind. You Martin. were, I'm you're, sorry, too you're too just mean. Be, I'm just honest. I try and be honest.
0: the floor
1: and then yeah and then the dresser house that we have an audience and yep. so, thursday so this thursday it's got to be ready for the hardest
0: ticket in town
1: yeah <laughs> so far away what is it else you would like to know no? it, c- it can be more general doesn't have to be specific to general no, but it can is. be a general um, you mentioned about that how you kind of like adopted like each piece to the singer herself yeah That's It's like pre-casted. Yeah. Um, aren't you really scared or worried of, like, if this, new, if this opera gets, like, reopened in,
0: like, a few months or yeah. a few years' time, it's yeah. going to be a new cast and yeah. new members. Aren't you worried that that's not going to go well? No, because uh, my responsibility is that it sounds as best as it can opening night. Uh-huh. And that the opening night... But, you know, there would the Zerlina, Zerbinetta, um, uh, Don Giovanni, they would have all been written for a specific singers' talents, yet so many singers can sing them and have sung them probably better than they were originally sung. It's just, with my team, I just needed it to sound as best as possible. But there will be people who will be able to sing this role. I mean, how many wonderful violettas are there? You know, how many wonderful... you know it, 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 It's all about me getting it right with this cast on opening night. But I'm, I'm sure we'll have some other wonderful reiterations. I don't do it that specifically in as much as, um, you know... It, it's not that forensically close that another singer wouldn't be able to sing it, but good question. And I was also wondering, is it like a common case that the cast is already set before composing a music? Every time it's changed. So this one, almost all the principles were set. Um, for my one that opens in New York in June, I wrote the entire thing without with one principal out of 12 set. So you then have to just write and because I know about repertoire, I was able to give the casting department in New York City Opera uh role equivalence. so that she is going to be like Olympia. He is more like a Tom Raquel. He, so I was able to give equivalence. and that's what knowing repertoire really helps with because you know the templates and you can smash the templates by all means do it. But knowing the rep really helps in that regard. So not musical reference per se, because um, I've got to this stage, I kind of have my own voice by now, you know, which, which is really good. But one thing we did do, you've got, you got to give a little wink and a little nod at some point. We talk about Wozzeck, like there is that kind of pianola mm-hmm. with a bander on stage. Um, we do. You know, yes, this is dealing with a murderous, horrible subject, but what, one of the things we wanted to deal with and what we wanted to broach with this piece was that in the hardest of times, we as humans do find solace in community, and we actually do find humour, and we do find lightness. And there is a pub that all these women, not at the same time, but all these women did frequent in the 1880s, called the Britannia. There's another one called the Ten Bells, but in terms of prosody and word setting, the Ten Bells was a lot harder to set, so the Britannia is a lot easier as a name. And we do have a scene in the pub, which has the aforementioned quartet, but it does have a pub song in it, where I kind of give a wink and a nod to, to, to that music of that time, so, yeah, th- th- that, that is my concession to the time. Good question, Sophie. <laughs> please, any questions, please? Um, at one point, you talked about being faithful to, to the history. Yeah. But at the same time, also to give it some drama. Yeah. Because it's essentially a stage and a drama itself. Yeah. And, how, and also, for the five women, they, they, don't, they didn't really meet each other yes. in the real world. Yes. Culture. So, so what we did, we, we, t- we took truths and we worked with them. So as I said, everything that as an event happened, but we knew that all these women lived around a road called Dorset Street, which is now called Duval Street in Spitalfield. And they all um, stayed, That there were lots of DOS houses, lots of common lodging houses. So what we took the idea was rather than living on the one street, let's put them under one roof. So, that's, so we took a, a poetic license based on it, yes exactly unity of space um we we know that the final victim of jack the ripper mary kelly um, she, though she lived in her own little room she would occasionally take in prostitutes um to shelter them so we have her as the person who runs this store. so we've again run with that truth um so what you have to do then is is create we, obviously there is a murder going on and we see how these women are responding to it but what you have to do is create uh, jeopardy in, in how these women's lives are being changed we set up plots whereby we know things are happening that are now being at risk because these women are being taken away we see we we bind these women's lives we see they have a sense of community and you create subplots which do become more and more important as these women's lives and we see we see the effects of these women being taken away so that therein lies the drama
2: And there are friendships between yeah. some of the women. So, for so, instance, two yeah, of yeah. the women
0: did die in one night. We yeah. have what's called, apocryphally, the double event. Uh, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes died on the same night. Um, we, therefore, bring them as, we, make the, we made those closer because we wanted, that they've been joined in history and, and latter after their deaths. So we thought we'd join them in life together in, in a way. So we've, we've run with truths uh, and to, to create dra- dramatic import. And even if it's a silly question, I promise I won't laugh at you. Actually, I've got one. Please. Um, it's not so much musical, but yeah. I've just always been interested, whether it's an opera or film or musical theater, yeah. that deals with historical narratives like yeah. this. How much liberty do you take in
2: modifying facts or establishing connections that may or may not
1: have been there
0: in truth? Well, you, what you do have to do with is, is deal with emotional truth, and you deal with tone, and you deal with the message of the peace. So the message of our peace was that we wanted to restore dignity and humanity to these women. And we wanted to relate every event that happened as to one that actually would have happened and did happen in, at that time. And that was our frame. So we weren't suddenly uh, creating events that either couldn't have happened because it's completely anachronistic or if it is actually insulting to these people. So we had, we felt we had a moral obligation and a, and a chronological obligation in this instance. But I'm sure that can be, if someone else was to have done this, they may have gone for a complete biography or they may have gone for a completely different take on it. But our, ours was historical truth and emotional truth in this instance. Um, you've chosen not to put Jack himself like in the, in the actual record, yeah. in the
1: actual production, which I think is a really like, interesting choice. Um, but
0: is he, is he represented in other ways, maybe like through the music or- Do you want to take that one? Well, the, the, the,
2: the deaths, if you like, of the women aren't really portrayed on stage other than they kind of get swallowed up by a certain sound in the, in the music. So Jack and the, actually the symbolum connects a little bit, I always feel, to Jack. And yeah, it's just a, a general sound mood that Ian creates every time something awful happens. So we don't, we don't ever meet him one but thing look, i mean i think the interesting character that we do meet that doesn't sing is a child called magpie who you'll see in in the stage and she, i for me she's the kind of the most important character on in the whole piece she has her own uh, she's represented by the crotalis the little you know the, the antique symbols the little bells that uh, ian writes so beautifully for her and i think magpie is the vision of hope in the piece and the potential for good to come in the end. So you'll see her on stage tonight. And yes. I think every time she comes on stage, she'll kind of grab everyone's attention. And that's that's a positive thing without having any musical contribution to the piece at all. I find it really fascinating how people will see She's her Atatio, journey. isn't she? She's, She's Artagio, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's the,
0: the the interesting character that does appear that is made up presumably she's made up yeah. yes um there as i said we're dealing with dark truths in this piece and an awful but t- far too present um element of life in that time was the uh, buying and selling of children child prostitution and that is an issue in this piece that is dealt with very front on in terms of um a fight between two characters in, in trying to sell a child. And she is that child and she is a representative of hope. So, yes, one other thing that we have as a representative of Jack is one of the apocryphal letters that came with the kidney. Mm. This is part of um, the narrative at the end of the piece. And um, the, the the letter's read aloud. So that's probably the only time he's given, if indeed he did send that letter, that's the only time he's actually given any type of voice. But he's, the letter's read aloud by a police officer. So yeah, that, that's... Well,
2: simultaneously, well, not simultaneously. So the police officer's reading the letter from Jack, and the next phrase, the photographer, uh, no, not the photographer, the writer, r- he's kind of portrayed as the, the, the person trying to help and support these women. He's writing a letter to the Queen. Mm? Uh, trying to defend the letter that existed, yeah, to, to say that how, how terrible the the things that are going on in in Whitechapel were at that time. So you get the the policeman who's not himself a particularly savory character, reading about this portion of kidney that actually arrived at whichever police station it was, yeah. uh, and it, Jack says that the other part I I cooked and ate, so it's the kidney of one of the women. He he was a pretty gross character, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, again, a lovely juxtaposition of evil and, and good, uh, the, the writer's reading out this letter to Queen Victoria. So it's a, our letter scene. There's a very famous letter scene in uh, Eugene Onegin, this is Tatiana's take, letter honey. scene. But ours is a letters scene. Yeah, two letters. Yeah, process of composing. Yeah, please. You said you started off
0: with um, some sort of vocal line. The, the vocal line, yeah. The vocal line. Mm.
2: And um, some sort of almost figured bass. And I wondered if you wrote for
0: piano. Yeah, well, I write I write the vocal lines at the piano. So um, the, it's, if you were to watch me composing, it would be the least interesting thing you've ever watched in your life. It's just a, a, a 38-year-old with a bad musical theatre baritone. Singing and going, <laughs> repeating over bass lines till it works, till it gets right. But I, I basically, it, it is the entire vocal line over a bass line that obviously changes. And I, you know, it's it, it's more than that. In as much as I have the, it, I have the time signatures established within those phrases. You know, we have fairly set tonalities at those points. But it is, I say, it's like an unrealized baroque figured bass. In that, it's just a very basic bass line. Um, not with six three five three six four 3 <laughs> 5-3, none of that, but... Um, so the piano part that you were talking about later. Isn't, isn't no, so the, the, the piano
2: vocal score is a reduction of, of the, the, full the orchestration. Score. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, some composers will actually write in that short score to start with and then we'll expand it out, but I find it easier to have the bare minimum, use the material I've written for the vocal lines to then create the orchestral tissue of the piece, to create a thematic coherence, and then... Uh, and this is at a very short time because the deadline was very tight with this piece, I then created uh, the vocal score very quickly. Um, every night, so I would write the piece for maybe seven hours a day and I'd have about half an hour a day to then set into vocal score what I had written and orchestrated that day. Because I only had about nine and a half, ten months to write this piece, I didn't have time to have a to-ing and fro with my editors who would have very gratefully done a vocal score for me, but... I would, we wouldn't have been able to keep, a, keep the pace because they would have been sending things back to me and I, I just had to get on. <laughs> Not ideal, but it kind of worked. But it means that there are things I missed out of the vocal score in my haste that will then, when the piece gets, goes to Opera North next year, be put into the new piano vocal score.
2: Yeah, we've been creating, or adding to the vocal score. Anything that I find missing, because I've conducted from the full score. So if I don't hear the trombone line in, the, off in the piano score or whatever, and, cues and, and like I know that. it will fit in the, orc- in, the, in the fingers of the pianist, we, we just add... Because I aired in creating the vocal score,
0: I aired on the side of less, but now we're finding the little extra bits that can be put in, and that will just make an even easier rehearsal experience next time around. So that's me. Not at all. Not at all. I hope that's given you a little bit of uh, clarity and lucidity on our process. Thank you.